welcome to the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. If you like the podcast and would like to encourage us to continue, please follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews really do help new listeners find our show, so thanks. You can also leave comments on our site, techdoneright.io, and we have a newsletter where you can find interesting stories, podcast news, and some mini essays from me. You can subscribe at techdoneright.io slash newsletter. Thanks again. Today on Tech Done Right, our topic is Agile Teams and Velocity. Velocity is supposed to be the one true measure of how an Agile team is performing, but we're going to talk with Claire Padelka and Doc Norton about the pitfalls of using Velocity as the only measure of a team's health. In this conversation, all three of us get to climb up on our various soapboxes and talk about our least favorite Agile anti-patterns. Uh, I hope you like it and find it interesting, and uh, here we go with Doc and Claire. Doc, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks. So uh, I'm Doc Norton, as you said. Uh, I am CEO of CTO2, a co-founder of that organization, and we do uh, a lot of process and leadership coaching for companies that deliver software. As far as agile and software development in general, I've got about 30 years in software development, and I stumbled into agile in very late 1999 when uh, XP Explained was published, and I read the book and realized that some of what they were doing was similar to what I was already doing, and the rest of the stuff just seemed like the smart stuff to do, and it's kind of gone from there. I had the experience of reading the original XP book and realizing that the things they were describing were like nothing that my software team was doing, and I wanted to do all of those <laughs> things that they were talking about, and I wanted to stop doing the things that we were doing immediately, Yeah, and I made myself a huge pain in the neck at the place I was at. Claire, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Claire Padelka. I am currently a project manager at TableXI. I've been a project manager for about the past 10 years. Uh, I've worked at large enterprises, but also smaller startups. Most of my career has been so far in education and in content development. Uh, and now at TableXI, I'm managing a whole variety of products and projects. And working at TableXI is actually my first official time doing agile development. Um, I've always mixed in a bit of Agile, I think, by instinct, but this is the first time doing a more official version of Agile project management. So as you guys have probably guessed from the introductions, we're talking about Agile teams today, and specifically we're talking about metrics for Agile teams. Doc is currently writing a book on LeanPub, uh, self-publishing a book called Escape Velocity, which is about metrics for Agile teams. Um, somewhat coincidentally, I also have a book on LeanPub called Trust Driven Development, which covers somewhat overlapping ground. So I'm, I think we'll have some stuff to talk about. So Doc, do you want to talk about what agile teams are trying to do and what problems that you are identifying and trying to solve in the Escape Velocity book? Yeah, certainly. So the book is an extension of a talk that I've been giving for a while. And this all comes from, you know, I've been either as uh, an on-staff individual or, you know, m much more recently in the last decade as a consultant helping companies, you know, get better at, at agile delivery. And one of the things I see over and over again is teams that velocity is a key metric that they're using. And in the beginning, it seemed to me like, oh, this is pretty good. It's very helpful. We can do math and, and interesting things with it. And the more that I, you know, paid attention and learned, the more I began to realize that this metric's actually not very helpful. And, you know, the reality of it is for a high functioning agile team, velocity is a helpful metric. 
but for a team that is getting started, because there are so many different problems in the system, uh, velocity is highly variable or, you know, it's just unreliable and it's actually creating, I think, bad behaviors for these teams. And so I go into organizations and, and really try and teach them other things that they should be looking at and measuring to get to where their delivery is consistent, steady, reliable, predictable, at which point velocity is now a useful metric. But the thing is, the work you need to do and the things that you measure to get to the point where velocity is a useful metric basically obviates the need for velocity at all because you can continue to use those metrics. To back up a second, so the idea of the way, like classically the way XP teams measure themselves is that they are building software in chunks that are usually called stories, and each story is given a point value, typically one to five, something like that. And these are supposed to be measures of complexity in some kind, and then the velocity is the sum total of all the points that you do over a usually a two-week iteration. And the idea is that the previous velocity is somewhat predictive of future velocity, and you use that to plan how much time you have left in the project, or how much, maybe more accurately to say, how much work you can get done in the time you have remaining in the project. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that is, uh, I think it's a very good articulation of, of velocity and a bit about its, its origins as well, right? In the XP space, I think we originally talked about ideal days and, uh, I don't remember the, the phrase off the top of my head, but there was something else that was used to identify the capacity or throughput of a team. Um, and over time that became, uh, instead of ideal days, we moved to points and, and instead of whatever the other phrasing was to velocity. And now basically any organization that is adopting Scrum gets indoctrinated early in velocity. Claire, how do you use this on the projects that you're working on? Like, Is this how you measure progress in the projects you're on? It is absolutely one of the measures that we use, if only because it's incredibly convenient to calculate, right? Every single one of our stories has uh, estimated points assigned to it uh, before we start working it. And then at the end of each iteration, it's automatically totaled up for you. Uh, Pivotal, which is what we use to track stories, just tells you really easily, uh, you got 18 points velocity this iteration, and it automatically plans for you another 18-point iteration for your next iteration. So we use it because it's easy and it's there. I don't have to do any extra work in order to uh, to get my team's velocity. That said, it is only one of the measures we use because I don't always find it to be terribly useful, um, at least in isolation. Um, to give you one example, we have had some uh, staffing changes on a team that I'm working on currently, and we had extra members added to the team during one iteration, and then we had those team members pulled away in the next iteration, and we assumed as you might, our uh, velocity was going to go down in that iteration where we had fewer team members. Uh, we hit exactly the same number of points, um, which to me doesn't mean that people were uh, slacking off or working extra hard to make up for it. Uh, it could mean those things, but in the absence of any other information, I don't know why we hit the same number of points. And so we, we pay attention to other measures as well, just to get a more holistic picture of how the project's doing. Doc, then what kind of problems do you see? Like, I guess Claire says, like, velocity is pretty easy to measure and there are a lot of tools that handle it. What are some of the problems when a team starts to rely on velocity as the one true measure of team performance? Right. So I think there's a, there's a number of things that can happen. Velocity itself, 
you know, is, is a very simple metric. It is easy to calculate. The challenge becomes, especially on teams that are early in their agile adoption, there's a bunch of things that are happening on the team, right? Um, and one of the things that, ex- that many of these teams experience is our velocity in this iteration was two points. In the next iteration, it was 27. And the next iteration, you know, is, is going to be 12. So it's all over the place. And it's hard to actually predict and plan when velocity is highly variable. When it's the only measure that we have, uh, we start to see interesting behaviors around anything from maybe we got to set a target for velocity. We believe that there's, let's say, a thousand points worth of work left, and we're doing on average 20 points per iteration, but we don't have, you know, two years to do this. So we need the team to get to 25 points. And the moment that we actually set a target for a metric like that, unfortunately, what it does is it incentivizes the team to change their behavior. So anything from maybe they actually do move faster, but quality goes down and we're not measuring quality. So we don't notice that it might manifest in other ways as well. And effectively, as soon as we set a target, the measure no longer means what it, what we thought it meant. And therefore the target doesn't mean what it, what it meant when velocity is all over the place we can't project. Sometimes we focus on, you need to get better at estimating. If you were just better at estimating, then this velocity would be correct. It's obviously not correct because it's variable. And the team starts focusing in the wrong places. One of the things I see on teams, and it's been a while since I've been on a team that really pushed velocity as the true measure, but one of the things I saw in those situations was that the iteration boundary would become a very strong deadline and we'd get deadline behavior at every iteration velocity to try and sneak in one or two extra stories to make that velocity look a little bit better at the cost of the first few days of the new iteration basically being lost. Right. And and that was weird. I've always thought that one of the problems with the whole, you should estimate better kind of thing is that is, is an unwillingness to accept the idea that estimates are estimates. Right. Uh, and not like written in stone. I've seen the future and this story is going to take me two days. Like the weatherman says it's going to rain 50% of the time. Like if it doesn't rain, then we don't normally, I mean, I guess we do kind of complain that the weather predictors in general aren't any good, but we don't normally like, we don't normally come up with the idea that they actually know the future. Right. <laughs> the way that I've sometimes felt that people uh, who ask developers for estimates expect us to accurately project the future. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you're exactly right. Estimates are just that. They are actually an estimate. And whether we estimate in time or complexity or, you know, some other uh, abstraction, it is a very difficult thing to do. I, there are techniques that you can use to get better at it, but I'm not sure that that's actually necessary. One of the things I've also noticed is you see a couple different different things, uh, interesting phenomena. Sometimes you'll see teams where their velocity is all over the place and they're super panicked about it. And if you sit down and look at it, you can see that, oh, that's interesting because while your estimates are, you know, are resulting in this, in this wild variability, as soon as we take all the points off the cards, it turns out that on average, you deliver 20 cards per iteration with, you know, a standard deviation of like 0.7. So what's the problem here? I always kind of feel like most of the problems teams have with estimation are actually problems in story decomposition. Sure. And if you can get the stories to about the same size, that that does a lot of the estimation work yes. for you. That, that people have a really hard time estimating stories 
when the story there's a very high variability in the size of the story. So it's much easier for me to tell you how long like four similar size stories are going to take than if I have two very small stories and two very big stories. Yep. And I see that as like, you're much better off breaking up the big stories if you can. And then I get, I, I used to get kidded a lot because my theory was you broke up all the stories until everything was a one point story. And then you just counted. That's actually, that's actually a very common practice, right? And, and frankly, what you're talking about now is it's not just a like, Oh, you know, you break them down so they're smaller or whatever. It, like, this all goes back to theory of flow and batch size and, you know, how things move through a system. So if you can decompose stories into these small, individually deliverable increments, you're moving smaller batches through the system and, you know, you're reducing the likelihood of bottlenecks and the impact of those bottlenecks. It actually makes sense. It actually mathematically makes sense to do that. I also think that it reduces some of that variability. Yeah. To me, some of the wild variability, if a team's vault velocity is very, very it fluctuates wildly from iteration to iteration, to me, that's often a sign that they're doing v- large stories. Yep. And they just happen to come in uh, at one side or another. Yes. No, absolutely. And, and that's the other thing we were talking about. Some of the, some of the things you start to see teams do when the velocity becomes a focus, you talked about kind of the, Every iteration uh, feels like there's a crunch right at the end. You also start seeing things like, well, it's an eight-point story, but it is you know, 80% done. So we're going to put six points on this side of the iteration boundary, and we'll carry two points into the next. At which, it, you know, what are we measuring now? Why are we using this? <laughs> My skin actually crawls yeah. as you say that. I think one of the problems you start to run into there when you start playing with, well, we have to break these stories down in, you know, 80% and 20%, or we have to force ourselves into, well, we're going to hit 25 points next iteration because we have to. It really negates a lot of the benefit of Agile entirely because Agile is all about let's deal with reality and be really upfront and honest about the situation and what we can do. And monkeying with the measures of things isn't actually dealing with the reality of, well, no matter how we break this down, it feels like we're going slow and we need to cut some scope or we need to... uh, you know, think about some other more tangible and concrete solutions rather than we're going to play with the measures around the project. Yeah. Or, or, or trying to figure out what the velocity slowdown actually is, what's actually causing that as opposed to just focusing on the velocity. You have a really interesting analogy in the book, Doc, about body weight. Yeah. Yeah. So so I, I like this one because I, it, just, it took me a while to come up with it. So, the you know, we look at velocity. Um, it is it's a measure of a complex system, right? It is a trailing indicator. It is a single measure of, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of interactions. When you look at the whole system from the moment that the someone say, said, hey, wouldn't it be nice if to the moment that somebody else said, hey, isn't that nice? Right. And when we look at that entire system, and then we take this one single measure analogously body weight is a single measure of a complex system and it is a measure that is taken after the fact. You consume things, you engage in activities, you have a particular lifestyle, and every once in a while you take a measure and, you, and, and that measure is just one piece of data. And from any one individual's body weight, you cannot say with certainty that they are or are not healthy. Just like from any given velocity, you cannot say that a team is or is not healthy. And furthermore, if you focus on just your body weight and, you know, say, for example, you want to, uh, you've decided that you need to lose 15 pounds, 
there are numerous different approaches that you could take. Anything from changing what you consume to increasing your exercise to smoking crack or removing a limb. Which, which we're not recommending. No, we're not recommending that at all, right? But those things would also achieve that goal. You know, some of them at the expense of the overall system. Same is true for velocity. If you get focused on we need a velocity of X or a velocity of Y and you set a target for it, the things that you can do to hit that target may actually hurt the overall system. And, you know, with body weight, it turns out that many of the things that we could do, at least the extreme end of things, are obviously detrimental. But there are also things we could do that we don't realize are detrimental. If I have a particular heart issue that's been undiagnosed and I decide to increase my cardiovascular exercise, I may actually be making my health worse. Right? Same thing for teams that are only measuring velocity. You may be engaged in behavior that improves the velocity but actually makes it worse for the team overall, makes it worse for quality delivery, etc. So it's, it's an insufficient measure. Claire, a while back you said the velocity was only one of the things you look at when you're assessing your team's health, your project's health. What are some of the other things that you look at? So we use a delivery dashboard at TableXI that measures uh, a bunch of different factors on the project. Some of them are the typical project management ones, um, looking at the budget, looking at uh, sort of our overall timeline and velocity. We also pay attention to issues and risks, uh, issues that have been triggered and how risks have been mitigated. We want to keep a close eye on those because I think having a little bit more of a qualitative understanding of what some of the problems that we can foresee and what we're doing about those uh, help us understand what the project is going to look like in the future. We also uh, take a look at what we call team temperature and client temperature. So really quick measurement, one to 10, how is the client feeling about the project and how is the team feeling about the project? And they can add more color if they want, but it's just kind of a quick uh, weekly or biweekly survey of how everybody's feeling. And if we start to see that dip below the, the seven or so mark, we know that there are people feeling uh, unhappy or unsatisfied on the project. And so we want to look into that as, a, again, a little bit more of a qualitative measure of how the project is doing. In the part of the book, Doc, where you talk about what to measure instead of velocity, you talk about some of those things. You talk about measuring team temperature in a way, and you also talk about having like a somewhat richer look at the team's workflow. Do you want can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. The team temperature, I think, is fantastic. And just as a as kind of a, a, a quick note here, in the organizations where we have done this, where we've actually measured you know, what I refer to as team joy, we have seen fairly consistently, not all of the time, but we have seen fairly consistently that Team Joy is actually a bit of a leading indicator compared to the rest of the metrics. What I mean by that is you will oftentimes see the temperature or joy measure dip an iteration or two before you start to see other measures move in it in a non-favorable direction. So it's something that like when that happens, as Claire had indicated, you know, it's a good time to have a discussion. Right. Other measurements that I really encourage teams to look at actually come a lot of them come more from a, a lean kind of background, um, but they are absolutely applicable to you know what we're doing on, on agile teams. In fact, those are you know fundamentally very very similar endeavors. Right. So you know uh, cycle time and lead time. Your lead time in general is the amount of time that elapses between uh, again my my kind of vernacular my, my phrasing for it is 
from the moment that someone says, hey, wouldn't it be nice if, to the moment someone says, hey, ain't that nice. Now, in some organizations, it might be a little bit shorter than that. It might be the lead time is from the moment that an idea hits the backlog to the moment that it is ready for deployment. just depends on how teams measure it, but it's basically that entire length of time. Inside of that, you have various activities, development, test, right? These two things may be blended together. They may not be. And cycle time is basically the amount of time it takes to move through any one of those given stages or a combination of those stages. And when you take these measures and, and look at them together, you can you know, start to get a better sense of the system. Making this a little concrete as, as kind of briefly as I can, I've gone into several organizations where the ask is to speed up development because things are just taking too long. And when we start measuring lead time and we start measuring various cycle times, often you know, one of the things that we'll discover is the lead time is 40 days. The cycle time for development and testing is you know, five days. So if we push on this team and we get them to reduce the development and testing by 20%, so we knock it down to four days, the lead time is now 39 so it's it's a negligible difference. The problem is somewhere else in the system. No matter how hard we push on this team, things aren't going to feel any faster. Those are certainly helpful. Cumulative flow diagrams are just a way of visualizing all of that information very easily, and it'll, it helps teams to kind of self-diagnose. Uh, wait a minute. According to this diagram, it looks like we actually have a bottleneck here. Let's drill into that and figure out what's going on there and, and you know what we might want to fix, right? So when you're talking about lead time, like that seems to be most appropriate for a project that's like in a steady state, because it seems like that would have weird effects at the beginning of a project. A bunch of stuff would go on the backlog and they would start to get picked up. Is that, am, I, am I misunderstanding that? No, no, that... not at all. Not at all. Actually, so lead, that's, that's, that's an interesting point, that lead time actually you know, it is, is impacted by the amount of work that remains you know, outstanding. Right. Um, so, you know, what we might discover with a long lead time is that there's with a long average lead time, we might discover that, man, there's just a bunch of stuff in the backlog that's actually super low priority that the reason it's it, you know, takes 300 days is because we didn't care about it for the first 274. So, you know, maybe that's a, an indication that we're planning way far ahead than we need to. It certainly indicates something about the whole process. Yes, if yes. Not right, development. right. Yeah. absolutely. But oftentimes it actually ends up, it turns out that the requirements c- collection and decomposition of the stories and articulation of acceptance criteria is taking you know, a much longer time than the actual development. Why is that? Is it that we only have one person working on that? Is it that, you know, there's a a lack of availability of our customers or the business? You know, but it gives us an opportunity to, to look at, all right, why is this taking so long? Yeah, I mean, I've been... <laughs> Uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, about 10 years ago, I worked at, at Motorola, which is on like, was at the time, arguably like the least agile place in the world from a software perspective. They, they desperately, desperately wanted software to look like manufacturing and they had this whole big waterfall process. Mm-hmm. But they also were very into the agile buzzword and without, we're trying to get teams to be agile without actually having them be agile, which I, I think is a, in some ways a pretty common story. But it led to some sort of weird distortions of uh, what Agile is. And one of those, I think, like 
just a very, very long requirements process, the kind of things that would be caught in your lead time measurement. Just a very long requirements process, a very long QA process. You know, uh, the idea that you couldn't have short iterations because you needed all of these processes. Like, there's all kinds of ways in which teams can, like, nominally be agile and, and in practice not <laughs> be anything but. The other thing that lead time does for so so when we talk about all right I, I talked about uh, the the story hitting the backlog and then you know either to either delivered or ready for delivery right um, and I'm and I'm to be clear here I'm thinking in terms of uh, Claire mentioned pivotal right so pivotal has this idea of the ice box and then the backlog and then the actual flow of work right and depending on how it is that you use that you load up the ice box and then you pull out an amount of work that you think is you know going to be executed on in the next 30 to 60 days that goes in the backlog and then you know pivotal does its mat its its magic and forecasts and everything for you right if we take lead time from when it is ready to when it is done we can take those lead times and we can actually put them onto a scatter diagram, onto a distribution chart, and we can actually use that information to start to actually tell our customer things like, okay, if you're telling me this is the highest priority, we will move it to the top of the backlog, and we anticipate it will be done in X number of days because our average lead time is this, and we can actually give you confidence intervals. If you want a 98% confidence interval of when this will be done, it is X plus some delta, right? And we can actually start to really get good predictions from that data. So I guess, like, is it fair to say that lead time is kind of the inverse of velocity, but because it's because of the the way you're calculating it, you have more data points, so you can get a, a kind of a richer distribution. Yes, you actually, uh, especially when you when you you know uh, when, when we're plotting it in that fashion, you know, we can see the lead time of every story that has come through. And what we start to get is they'll actually fall on a curve, but it is not a bell curve. It's not a Gaussian. It is actually a, usually a, what, right-shifted weeble. So effectively, what you end up with is there's a hump and then a very long tail. The reason being, there is some amount of time within which you could not complete anything in the backlog, right? So your commute home, right? On that commute, let's say on average, it's 20 minutes. It's possible on some days for it to be 17 minutes. On a really good day, it might be 15, but it's never going to be two, right? You can never get home from work in two minutes if your normal is 20. However, it is possible for the commute home to take three hours. So we end up with this curve that's shifted, right? And we can actually figure out confidence intervals using this curve. So I can tell you, you know, within 40% confidence, it's going to be done in a, a week. But if you want a 98% confidence interval, because we've got stuff that sits way out there on the tail, 98% confidence interval tells me this could be a month and a half from now. And we just have, we've got math to actually prove every number that we're saying. Velocity ends up compressing and averaging stuff too much. Another thing that I really like about lead time and cycle time is that it's based in something concrete, which are actual days. Points, as we talked about before, are just slippery. Uh, but days are days. And we know that all sorts of things can fall into influencing how many days an individual story might take. But once you have that aggregate of data to look at, it becomes a lot more uh, something I can speak to with much more confidence than points velocities. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think another place where a lot of like managerial interference in this process goes wrong is not looking at stories and estimates in aggregate to use points. You can say things about a group of one point stories in aggregate that you can't necessarily say about any individual one point story, which might have be the one that we just didn't, you know, blew up because something unanticipated happened. Yeah any, yeah. any number of things can happen, right? Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think that a lot of times it is part of the challenge that happens on teams is because the information is available to us and we only know so much, we start looking at each individual story and evaluating, you know, what happened here, what happened here. So the team said it was going to be three points, um, but it took twice as long as we we expected. This must not have been a three-point story. And, you know, there's all kinds of challenges there. One, effort and duration are correlated, but they're not equivalent so you, that's uh, you know a challenge in and of itself, and we're estimating complexity. We might have actually been entirely correct that that was the complexity. It just happened to take us longer to solve it. My analogy there is Sudoku games. If you open a book of, of Sudoku games, it's usually broken down into easy, medium, and difficult. If you know that your average for an easy puzzle is eight minutes, a medium puzzle is twelve minutes and a difficult puzzle is 16, and you pick up an easy puzzle and you complete it in 20 minutes, does that now mean that it was a a difficult puzzle in terms of complexity? No, it was an easy puzzle. It just happened that you missed some inference, and so it took you longer to solve it. And the same thing is true with stories. Just because it takes longer to solve it than you thought doesn't make it more or less complicated. Those are really hard concepts when we're talking about software. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, I think there's all kinds of things here that, that are either counterintuitive or like there's sort of a, a built up cultural expectation around what an estimation, what estimation is and what this process looks like that makes it, uh, hard to deal with. Claire, I want to know, like, what kinds of things do you do to manage estimation and, and team metrics in like the face of a team that changes or a uh, scope that changes and things like that? Like you, you mentioned earlier on that, that velocity got messed up. Uh, because you gain people and then lost people. What kinds of things do you do to keep a handle on that as a project changes? Well, I think not relying too much on velocity as, as the one measure is is a huge part of it because your velocity is going to go up and down. We actually, we do, like most Agile teams do, lots and lots of check-ins. We have our stands and regular iteration meetings and it's a lot more about understanding really deeply the work that the designers and developers are doing at any given moment, how they're feeling about it. I think there are a lot of times when you're not technically putting a lot of points on the board, but a lot of work is still happening. Um, a lot of progress is being made. And you're not going to know that unless you're talking to your teams on a regular basis. So it's just a lot of conversation around, well, we're, we're getting all of these uh, foundational pieces built, but we can't actually check off any stories yet, so we're not getting the points. Or even if you are racking up a bunch of points, understanding that there are like some missing pieces to the puzzle that aren't coming together yet, whether that's design's been delayed or we're waiting on client approvals. You mentioned briefly the cumulative flow diagrams. And that's something that I haven't specifically used before, but now that I've read a little bit more about them, thanks to you, I'm going to start using because I think there are places that are parts of the process that are illuminated through that kind of diagram that you don't always see in another chart. You might hear it from the teams if you're, if you're having good conversations, you're really talking to your people, but also being able to look at a diagram and saying, 
oh, well, we've been waiting on uh, acceptance testing for all of these stories for two weeks. And that's why our velocity looks slow. That's why it feels like we're not making progress because we're not actually checking things off the list. Or it's not just that we're feeling like uh, a lot of scope has been added. Oh, in fact, a lot of scope has been added recently. Um, wow, look at that cliff. So I think there, there's the combination of you definitely want the data whenever you can get it, whether that's a burn-up chart, whether that's just a measure of velocity. But it's all about talking to your teams and finding out from them how how they're feeling, how they're doing, what pitfalls they see ahead. I ask my teams all the time, sort of, what are their deep, dark fears? Because I haven't done enough projects here at TableXI and not enough uh, software development projects yet to really be able to anticipate all those things, but my team has. And so digging into those conversations with them, which is a little bit the the joy factor that you were talking about before, I might think of it more like, I don't know, satisfaction or something else, but it's sort of how they're feeling about how the project is going. It's squishy and there's not a good number to put on it, but it's the best way I know to manage a project. That actually raises an interesting question for me. And is the difference I've seen between large organizations and small organizations? And Doc, I wonder what you have to say about this. One of the ways in which large organizations have problems is because people wind up overseeing teams and processes that they don't actually like know and therefore are more reliant on numerical data because they can't go and talk to every team and find out what their deepest, darkest fears are. Do you see a difference in the way like small organizations and large organizations use metrics like this or how they can use metrics like this? Yeah, I do. So I see a difference in the way that, that they do use them and also in the way that they could, right? So one of the things that I see with, with metrics, unfortunately, in larger organizations is that the data becomes the primary means of communication. So I'm not actually having a touch point with the team. I'm actually, you know, several layers removed, but I see some, some report that's full of numbers. Yeah, it's a line on a spreadsheet that's green, yellow, or red. Yes, exactly. Actually, yes, that's, that is that is very that is very accurate. That is oftentimes the abstraction that I get is green, yellow, or red, and then I just want to know why is it red, or even you know why is it yellow, right? And then and then even when you go down another layer, right? Oftentimes I see I start to see this 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 interesting phenomena where so we're gathering all of this data, and the manager looks at this data and draws conclusions and makes decisions and then comes to the team and says, okay, here's what you guys need to do from now on because I'm seeing this on my charts. And in a small organization, that's not the manager's chart. It's the team's chart. And that's where it should be, is that data actually is information for the team to have a conversation facilitated ideally by that leader, by that manager, to be able to say, hey, folks, here's what's happened in the, na- in the last couple of iterations. Is this what we expected? And if the answer is yes, in fact, it's what we expected, and here's the reasons why and the decisions that we made that led to that, and we all agreed to these things and we still do, awesome. If the answer is no, that's actually not what we expected, whether it is a positive outcome or a negative outcome, we should probably take a moment and pause and talk about why did we get outcomes that were different than our expectations and what might we do about that. But it's a healthy conversation at the team level. And I think large organizations can do that, but something strange happens as hierarchy grows. We move data to authority 
instead of moving authority to the data. And we, we need authority distributed to where the actual information, you know, sources from and where it's best used. I don't know if that actually answered your question or not, but it was a great soapbox and I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I would say having having been a project manager in large organizations as well, something that I've seen, I think Doc goes along with what you're saying, that as those reports move up the chain, they become more and more abstracted from actual people who are doing real thinking and work every day. So then as they move up the chain, it becomes, yeah, just a color and just a number. And that makes it much easier for those folks who are higher up to say, well, they just have to move faster. This number just has to change. If this number wasn't 20, but was 30, then this would be green and not red. So that's what has to happen. And it becomes very abstracted from, well, but there's actual people and maybe uh, we can sit down and talk about the context. And you may not be aware of this thing that happened last week. And we had this extra question that, you know, all of those things that are the real day-to-day of working on a project doesn't make it into that one spreadsheet that they get as a report. So uh, when I was at Motorola, again, I hate to pick on them, but um, all the people that that were there then are probably gone anyway. Uh, We had a thing where every six months or so, our like boss's boss's boss would come and meet with our team and tell us what the priorities were going to be for the next six months. They were specifically telling us what metrics they were going to look for uh, in terms of bonuses, I think. And this guy who we basically saw once every six months, he said, all right, everybody, what what are the things our team this team needs to work on over the next six months? And he went around the room, and the first person said, uh, "Well, our quality we have some quality problems. We really need to test more." And the second person said, "Yeah, that's right. I think we need to test more." And the third person said the same thing. And then he literally said, "Okay, our development priority for the next year is to be more efficient and to spend less time in tests." Wow. <laughs> because that's the number he wanted he wanted raised. Like they they had. They, they were very, very metrics driven, but they chose really, really odd metrics and put a lot of weight on them. And as you say in the, in the book, like when you put a lot of weight on a specific metric, it stops measuring what it's supposed to measure and, and it becomes a target in and of itself. And definitely saw that happen. I, I mean, I've seen that happen in, in other ways at small organizations, but I've definitely seen that happen at big organizations. Yeah. What you're referring to there, by the way, is in terms of the uh, the, the placing, uh, you know, setting targets uh, for a measure is is Goodhart's law. So it's not just like a, in my opinion or in my experience, this is what happens. It's actually in economics and in uh, society as a whole. When it's a super robust social science finding, I, I was really glad you named it because I couldn't for the life of me remember the name of it, and it's super hard to Google. But it also comes up in education a ton. Because you, education is a classic, like you get to measure, you, you pick what you're measuring on the test and then you're only measuring the outcomes of the test uh, and not anything. Yeah. You know? And it's, that's, that's essentially what you're saying here. Once you decide what your metric is, you'll get the metric, but whether you get the thing that the metric is supposed to measure. Is a whole other question. Yep. Yep. Uh, one of the things I was really happy that you put in, because uh, it's it, – it, it's again, it's something I haven't seen a ton of, but it's a particular pet peeve of mine is when people want to break down velocity, team velocity, uh, to, to the individual level, right. which I think is completely toxic and like just has horrible, horrible side effects. Did you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. I'll give you another soapbox. Yeah, another yeah soapbox. absolutely. 
You know, so it's interesting. The individual velocity is is just it is such a poor metric, right? And one of the reasons is so this is one of these metrics that you know invokes all of these. Uh, there's a bunch of laws that I talk about in the book in terms of like Goodhart's law, the Hawthorne effect. I even talk a little bit about Freeman's thermostat and all these things that kind of. They're side effects of, of what happens when we mishandle metrics, right? But individual velocity is a metric that in and of itself is flawed. It's not just that if you handle it improperly, it's flawed. It is flawed in and of itself. It is a perverse incentive under all circumstances because what we want on an agile team is for everyone to work as a team, collaborating, sharing information, moving things forward together. And as soon as you start to measure individual velocity, you are sending a clear message to the team that collaboration and helping each other is not valued at all, right? I don't want to be in a position where because I helped you for half of the day on a problem that you were having, I didn't get my story across the line, you know, so everyone starts to operate in complete isolation, and it is exactly the opposite of the type of behavior that we want on the team. Um, you're going to end up with more bugs in the code because the more more people work in isolation at the seams between my work and your work is where bugs are going to occur. If we work together, we eradicate those. So it's just for so many reasons, it is a terrible metric. And it ultimately doesn't tell you anything about that individual's actual performance. In fact, in many cases, the people on the team with the lowest velocity are the people on the team who are are actually providing the most benefit because they're the ones that are helping everybody else or taking care of the minutia type stuff. Yeah, I think that is a great example of why you need also a balanced scorecard, right? Because if we started measuring individual velocity, sure, maybe we would see like who was performing fastest, uh, whatever that might mean in this case, but you would almost certainly see bugs increase, quality drop, satisfaction drop, and all of those things feed into the actual success of the project. So yeah, I was glad that you called that out as well, because the idea of almost having a, a competition among team members, like there's a reason why we work in teams and it's not to fight against each other. Yep, Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, uh, your takeaway is <laughs> talk to your team. Constantly. It will make everybody feel yeah. better and guaranteed uh, it will be better than just looking at two numbers on a spreadsheet. Doc, if people want to reach you online, how can they reach you? Yeah, so I am I'm basically Doc on Dev everywhere. It is literally all the things whack Doc on Dev, except for, I think, Google Plus, who no one cares anyway. And even there, so the Google Plus wouldn't let me use Doc on Dev because they said you have to use your real name. Uh, yet I am Doc Norton on Google Plus, and Doc is not my given name. Um, so they violated their own rules, I guess. But yeah, Doc on Dev. And uh, the book is Escape Velocity, and it's on LeanPub, right? Yep. Uh, LeanPub's whack Doc on Dev, whack Escape Velocity. <laughs> Claire, where can people reach you if they want to? Can they? Uh, they can email me at Claire at TableXI.com, and I'm on Twitter at C Padulka. Good luck spelling that. Uh, C P O D U L K A. Great. And yeah, I'm Noel Rapp, and I have my uh, trust driven book, which again covers other stuff. It covers a little bit of velocity stuff, not in the depth that Doc does, but it talks about some other things about software teams, and that's at LeanPub slash trust driven development. Uh, all one word. Thank you guys both for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation and yeah, thanks. Great, thanks. Well, thank you. 
Tecton Wright is a production of Table XI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. You can find Table XI on Twitter at Table XI and me at Noel Rapp. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tecton Wright can be found at TectonWright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right or subscribe to our newsletter at TectonWright.io slash newsletter. Table XI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at tablexi.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we do have jobs open at the moment. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.